This is a really neat text. Paul here reminds the church in Thessalonica that he came to them um, through much suffering and being treated, treated shamefully at Philippi. And, you know, we've talked about before, we sometimes approach our faith with the assumption that if we're doing everything right for the Lord, everything's going to work out. And it's all going to be the way that I want it to be. And this text shows us that what I want for my life and what God wants for my life is not necessarily always the same. And yet God uses that. He will use it in a mighty way. And so even though I'm preaching from 1 Thessalonians, we're actually going to be spending most of our time today in Acts 16. So if you remember from the sermon two weeks ago, just to bring you up to speed, Paul is, is, has first, he started out, he was in modern-day Turkey, and he wanted to go north, south, east, and west, and God closed all those doors. He ended up seeing the vision of the man of Macedonia. He went over to Greece uh, in Macedonia, and the first place that he hits is a little town called Philippi. And as he's walking around on the streets of Philippi, He's being followed by a girl who's saying, this man is a servant of the Most High God. And after a few days of this, the text says that Paul was greatly annoyed with her. He just wanted her to shut up. Seriously, can you say? And so he turns around, he casts the demon out. So she was being used by her owners for a prophet. She was a soothsayer, and she would, I guess, read palms, that sort of thing. And so Paul casts the demon out of her freeing her from the bondage that she was under, allowing her to live a normal life, and her owners are livid because now she can't make them a buck. And so this is where we pick up on the story. The owner gets a group of people together. They mob around Paul, and then they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. So the text is very clear that the reason why these guys are actually upset is because they lost their source of income in using this other human. But they go before the magistrates and now, now all of a sudden it's all about the law. Now, the accusation that they bring against them is patently false. They're not advocating any customs that are illegal for, for Romans to participate in. They just lie. For some reason, we are surprised when the world lies about us. Now, there were in the first century, there were lots, and we know from archaeology, we know from writings at the time, there were lots of misunderstandings that turned into just straight-up lies. Where Jesus says, and he tells us, to participate in the Lord's Supper on a regular basis. We see Jesus saying, this is my body that was broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. And then, again, this is my blood, which is the new covenant. Drink this in remembrance of me. We say those exact same words today. Well, that created a misunderstanding in the Roman world that the Christians were cannibals. And so that was the lie that went out that caused all kinds of problems and dissensions for, for those believers. The enemy's going to twist, take a little grain of truth. All lies really usually have just a little truth in it. It's just tweaked, just twisted. And so the Christians had to deal with that lie. In the first century, in the second century, in the third century, the Christians also had to deal with a lie where 
the church had elevated women. Before uh, Christianity came along, women were considered property. If you were a husband and you had a wife, she was your property. You could do with her as you pleased. If you wanted to divorce her, divorce her. If you wanted to, to kick her to the curb, kick her to the curb. That was even the case among the Jews. In fact, remember when, the, the, uh, when Jesus made the comment that you, you better not be getting a divorce unless it's for adultery because you're causing that person who you divorced to have adultery. The disciples said, well, then why didn't get married? Because in the Jewish custom, it was just licky split. There you go. Women were treated like property. They were subservient. Well, all of a sudden, you have Christianity that comes along, comes along, and Jesus, in his example, sits down with the woman at the well and talks to her and treats her with respect and loves her. You have Paul saying things, there are no men or women, there are no Jews or Gentiles, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And this elevated the role of women in the world to the point that we still feel the repercussions of that in our culture today. And that calls people to come up against the church and make accusations and make lies. You know what, they're still lying about us. If you say that sin is wrong, people will turn and say, oh, you hate people. If you say, well, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The response to the world is, you, you arrogant know-it-all. But you see, we shouldn't be shocked by that because the very first time Jesus was recorded preaching a sermon, he said, blessed are you. When men revile you and say all manner of evil against you, for so they did to the prophets before you. We should expect that. The Bible says all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so Paul Tripp said, if you're not suffering persecution, the question to ask is, am I living godly in Christ Jesus? We are to expect the world to come against us in anger and mocking and lies. And so this is exactly what happens with Paul. Paul frees this young lady from the bondage that she was under by casting that demon out of her. Jesus glorious saves this woman and her owners now respond in anger and lies. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. Now rods, that's uh, how many of you here ever had a parent or a grandparent tell you, go out to that tree and cut yourself a switch. It was later in my life that I realized if I cut a big old stick, that hurt a lot less than them little ones that would wrap around your legs. <laughs> I wasn't the brightest bulb in the bulb box, but I eventually figured it out. Now, it was like that, except it was a long, thin rod. Under Jewish custom, you could only beat someone 20 times. And so what they would do is they would only strike the person 19 times just in case somebody miscounted, they wouldn't have violated the law. That was not the case with the Roman beating. They just wore you out. And so they stripped their clothes off and they beat them publicly, humiliating them, beating them. And when they had afflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he, the jailer, put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. So they literally were put under the jail. Now, 
you got to figure that at this moment, they're not thinking everything's going well for them. They've just been humiliated. They've been stripped down naked. They've been whooped in front of God and everybody. And then the, the head men of the city say, hey, don't just put these people in jail, but put them, make sure they don't go anywhere. And so the jailer takes them, puts them in the basement of the prison, puts them in stocks, which means that their feet and their hands are actually secured either to the wall or inside of a wooden contraption so that they can't move. They're obeying God. This is not God's blessing, one would think. I wouldn't be too happy at this moment. I'm bloody and tied up inside of the prison. Now let's see what example they give us. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. So here they are. In stock, I, do, did, I chuckled to myself some this week because I, we know from the story that it was Paul, Timothy, and Silas. But Timothy's not singing. He's the stick in the mud here because only Paul and Silas were praying and singing. So he didn't tell us what Timothy was doing, but I got a picture in my mind. He's like, are you people lost your mind? What are you singing about, man? We're, we just got whooped. Anyway, um, So they're singing, and the prisoners were listening, and there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everybody's bonds were unfastened. So here they are. They're in the prison. They're praying, thank you, God. They're singing. We don't know what they were singing, but they were singing. And all of a sudden, there's an earthquake that was so violent that the text tells us it shook the foundations of the prison, and then boom, they're free. The stocks get torn apart. The drawers get all akimbo so that they go popping open. They're free. Now, you would think that they hit the road, right? I'm out of here. Peace, my brothers, and grace upon you. But see you later. So the jailer, who had just been called in front of the magistrates in the city council, realizes when he he gets up because of the earthquake, he sees the doors are all open. What does he assume? They've hit the road. And not six, seven hours ago, the leaders of the city said, be sure no matter what happens, these guys are, are kept. So he assumes that they've escaped. He pulls his sword out to kill himself, probably for fear of the torture that he would receive. Paul hears the sword unscabbered that's got that distinct shing. And he says, wait, stop. Do not harm yourself. We're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling down before Paul and Silas, then he brought them out and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They hadn't preached a word. The next text says that they... That, that they spoke the word of the Lord to them and all who were in our house. So they eventually share the gospel with them. They tell them, uh, the, him and his family, how they can get saved. But at this point in the story, they hadn't said a word. It was their lives that had spoken. It was the way they acted that had spoken volumes about the God that they believed in. Now, 
Think about this. What we just saw in this story is God moved and then people acted godly. Those two things working in concert. And you know what? I hate to tell you this, but people get saved the same way today. Now, in my lifetime, I've never had an earthquake unshackle me. But I have seen lots of miracles. And the biggest miracle I've ever seen is this. I I've grown, grew up, I've, I've told people before, I grew up in a, in a family that was uh, all drunks and thieves and, and, and rebels. And I learned at an early age an important lesson. Drunks don't stop being drunks. It just doesn't happen. I had an uncle who... Uh, reported to play baseball for the Milwaukee Braves. I've had people tell me that he was a shortstop that was amazing. And he never started the first day of practice because he shows up, reports, and then goes out to celebrate and went on a four or five day bender and completely blew his chance to play baseball. And I remember as a small child, my dad going and getting him in places. And he would swear off and he would stay with us and get a, dad would help him get a job painting or help him get a job over here or over there. And he would, I ain't drinking again. Uh, that it put behind me. And then after three or four weeks, all of a sudden he disappeared. And I didn't, as a kid, know what was going on. My parents knew because they had lived long enough to realize the drunks go back to the drink. Addicts do the same thing. That's why there's a, I think it's 85% recidivism rate among AA. People can go through programs. They can get to where they, they feel better by themselves. They understand what the triggers are. They, they, they get it together, and then something happens. They're going to go back to what made them feel good before. This church is absolutely full up. Your pastor is one of them that used to be drunks. I've heard stories about uh, Doug Pope. I've heard stories about Jerry Eubanks. And I could sit here all day and tell you stories about the wicked life that I've lived. I have never performed a miracle But I had an amazing miracle performed on me. Where God didn't just save me and redeemed me. He changed me. So that he changed my want to's. Doesn't mean I'm perfect. But it means that deep inside of me is a desire to serve my king. That wasn't there before. And so just like this earthquake happened, a miracle has happened in my life. And you know what? The world sees that. The world knows that. The world looks. What is that? That's not right. That's not normal. And it doesn't have to be something as dramatic. I had someone the other day, we were, I was talking to them about their testimony. And they said, well, I don't have a dramatic testimony. I've never gone out and done stuff. And I just, I grew up in the church. I got saved when I was six. And, and I've lived for God my whole life. I'm like, that's the greatest testimony you could have. Are you kidding me? A little, any of you who have met a six-year-old knows they're heathens. <laughs> if it's six years old, God reached down and saved you. And you don't have those burnt fields behind you that are embarrassing. Do you know how embarrassing it is to stand in front of a pastor search committee and have to go over your arrest record? 
You don't have that. You can serve God faithfully your whole life. And when you get to heaven, you'll get the well done, my good and faithful servant. That's the most miraculous testimony there can be. So something miraculous happens to a person, just like happened to Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And then people see that change. People see angry people all of a sudden filled with love. People see folks who are all about number one, and I'm here for me and mine, all of a sudden reaching out and helping somebody. And the world goes, what in the world is that about? Just like this Philippian jailer who said, what do I have to have to get some of that? Which is why we need to be careful that we don't walk around like a bunch of sourpusses all the time. And sometimes we do. How you doing, brother? Well, let me tell you about my colitis. How much time you got? Or even if it's not about health issues, it's just we don't seem to carry the joy of the Lord in our life. And so we want, we want people to see what God has done in our lives so that they will ask the question of this Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Paul's response, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved in your household. Paul points them to a risen Savior. It ain't about him. Paul could have taken this opportunity to say, did you notice how I took that beating without saying a word? Did you pay attention to how well I'm handling all this persecution? Did you notice how awesome I am? I'm just saying. He pointed to a Savior. He pointed to Jesus. Because Jesus is somebody who can save them. I can't save anybody. And so he teaches them. It says then he, he spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them that same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And you know, it immediately shows us the fruit of this guy's salvation, that this jailer, who his number one concern was the same as the people that caused the rabble, was himself. He was all about, what am I got to do? All of a sudden, now he's more concerned about his brothers in Christ. One of the biggest fruits we can have is that we don't worry about us as much as we worry about others. That's really what the definition of love is. If I could make you guys understand, the youth that are sitting over here, if you could just believe me. I'm about to celebrate my 25th year anniversary, and I'm here to tell you that what the world tells you is love is a lie. What the world tells you is love is an ushy-gushy feeling inside, and we've all had that, and I, I love when I have that ushy-gushy feeling. I've still got it really strong for my beautiful bride. It ain't always there. You don't fall in and out of love. There's a song that says, the heart wants what the heart wants. But the Bible's response to that is, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Your heart will lie to you. Love is a decision that says, I care more about that other person's wants, needs, and desires than I do about what I want. That's love. Love is sacrificial. 
The Bible says greater love is nobody than this, that they lay down their life. And so we see this jailer that worked out in beautiful in a beautiful picture where when we first see him, he's all about himself. How can I keep myself from getting tortured? I'm going to kill myself. Which, by the way, the most selfish act you can take is suicide. Because he obviously had a family that he was just going to leave them to get wore out by the authorities. He's a selfish Self-centered man, and now all of a sudden we find him feeding and caring for his brothers and sisters in Christ. You can tell a lot about a man or a woman about how they treat other people. In fact, I this is just this is uh, Tom three sixteen. You don't have to believe this. One of the things that I do to watch and see. And I used to do this in interviews. I would take somebody to lunch, and I paid really close attention to how they treated the wait staff. If somebody's a jerk to people who can't do anything for them, I didn't want to hire them. Because that means that when they get their, their things get rough at work, they're going to be a jerk to me and all the people that work with it. You can tell a lot about a person about how you treat people who can't do anything for you. That's why the Bible says that their true religion and undefiled before God is to care for widows and orphans. Because they can't do anything for you. And so how we as a church care for the people who can't do anything for us. We say, ah, we really aren't going to do this CR thing anymore because you know what? Those people can't tithe. They're not really going to work in the church. That's not really something we want to focus on. If we make that kind of a decision, we need to check our heart. Because that is not godly. That's wicked. We look to not what somebody else can do for us, but we function out of love. I'm going to get to that even more later. So, We see him with a life change. And he brought them up out of the house and set them before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. Isn't that amazing? He went from being suicidal to rejoicing with his whole house that he had believed in God. And when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. The jailer's probably like, yeah, you can go, man. Paul says, well, they beat us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens threw us into prison, and now they want us to leave secretly? I don't think so. No, let them come themselves and take us out. And so the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid, and they heard that they were Roman citizens. And so they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So... As I've read this, that is weird. Did Paul not know he was a Roman citizen the day before when he got beat and he just took it? Had he forgotten? Was he in jail and he's like, oh man, I've got my, my ID card. Isn't it interesting that on one day he suffers for the Lord silently and then the next day he makes demands? And I heard, uh, if you've ever get an opportunity to read a book, it's called The Insanity of God. It is an amazing book, but it looks at persecution in the church today. And he actually, Ann and I got to go through some training with the, with the IMB on if you undergo persecution, how do you act? If you, you're jailed, if you're 
if you're beaten, if you, how, how are you supposed to act to best glorify God? Just the details of that. And he taught from this text, and he said, what is the difference between the two scenarios? And he said, I have interviewed thousands of people around the world that have, been, that have, have suffered for Christ, and the answer that I've always gotten is you'll know at the time. Now, what I do think is interesting is that God, and this is the, really the point, I think, of this text, God allowed Paul to go through all of this stuff, and Paul could have easily looked at that and said, why is God doing this for, to me? And yet the reason why he allowed Paul to go through all that is because he loved that jailer. God cared more about the jailer spending eternity in heaven than he did about Paul's comfort. And if you're really a servant of the Most High God, then when God's allowing you to go through stuff, sometimes he allows us to go through it for other people. Elizabeth Elliot wrote a book called These Strange Ashes. It is a horrible book in that um, it's really hard to read because the whole book, everything goes wrong. She was a missionary in, in uh, Ecuador, and she's working to translate the New Testament into to the, the uh, Kitan language, and it's just all falling apart. And every time she makes some headway, something happens. She ends up getting a guy who can help her translate, and that guy gets in a bar fight and gets shot and killed. And then she gets in a fight with some other Christians, and it's just, it just ruins their testimony in that village. And then at the end of the year, she loads up on a bus, and she's riding out of town to, to go to Quito, and somebody her, stole her suitcase that had a year's worth of translation notes in it. So that whole year was lost. And she wrote this book talking about God's faithfulness in the midst of it. And there's a, a, uh, a postscript, if you buy the book today, that she says, I, I wrote this book and I knew that God wanted me to write it, but I, I, I argued with the publisher because there wasn't a happy ending. You kind of think as you're reading it, oh, that's terrible, but surely at some point we're going to get to the point where it's like, and then God did this awesome thing. And then you finish the book with the suitcase getting stolen, and you're like, well, there's a week of my life that I won't get back, and I'm, I'm more depressed than before. <laughs> and her and the publisher uh, argued about the way that the book ended, and she said, I, can't, I couldn't do anything about it because that's how it really happened in life. And so she was riding in a car with a lady who had been diagnosed with cancer, who had gone through unbelievable amounts of, of hell and treatments. And in her cancer treatments, the, this lady's husband passed away, and it was just a terrible thing. And she looks at Elizabeth Elliot and says, While I was going through that, God used your book so much to minister to me, but I've always wondered, why did you write that book? Why did God let you go through all of that stuff? And Elizabeth Elliot, with tears running down her face, looked at this girl and said, for you. God let me go through that. You just said that while I was going through my personal hell, that this book ministered to you. That's why God did it to me. We need to remember that God is in control. We aren't. And sometimes he allows us to go through things to make us more like Jesus, to work out in us the transformation to, to Christ-likeness. All of that stuff is still true. Romans 8.28 is still in the Bible. But sometimes we go through it so that the people around us can see that God's faithful in our lives. 
And so this Philippian jailer that we'll get to meet in heaven got saved on the back of Paul's humiliation and beating. Hmm. So now we come to our text in 1 Thessalonians. So Paul said uh, in 1 Thessalonians 2, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, and that's all that stuff that we just talked about is what he was taught, referring to, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of such conflict. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I'm humbled that even after being beaten and put in stocks, they still had boldness to proclaim your word. How is that so? God, I pray that you help us to see. God, I pray that you open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see from your word. For these things we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. They had boldness. Now, you know what? It, it, this tells me that either this God that they served was amazingly transformative in their lives or they were just stupid, one or the other. I mean, if somebody said, don't you say this, and if you do, I'm going to whoop you, and then they wore them out, you would think that that would shut them down, right? I mean, I believe in high school paddling still works. You tell me. I know I have a tendency to run my mouth quite a bit, but it didn't take too many paddlings for me to figure out. The best thing I could do is keep my mouth shut, at least until after school. And then I can run it all I want to. Well, they carry, get a whooping, and they, they're bold now. Boldly, it says. They're still talking about Jesus. They're still preaching Jesus, knowing full well they might get whooped again. We see the same thing in Peter. I look at the life of Peter, because this has always weirded me out. Jesus told Peter's like, I am going to serve you no matter what. I'm never going to deny you. And Jesus says, dude, the cock's not even going to crow three times until you deny me. So I'm praying for you because Satan wants you. He's going to sift you. And Peter goes out, no, not me, uh-uh. Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. Goes out, sure enough. He starts denying Jesus. The last time he denies Jesus, he's standing around a fire pit with a bunch of guys, and a little girl comes up to him and says, hey, you've got a hick accent just like those Nazarenes. You've got to be with Jesus. And Peter is so worried that he's going to get outed by this little girl. He's so upset that this little girl pointed him out that he cusses her out. That's an example of a Christian for you right there, boy. So here's Peter Weirded out by a little girl out in him, so he cusses her out. There's a real man. Again, that's just weird to me. And then not 30 or 40 days later, actually 43 days later to be exact, we read, but Peter standing when the eleven lifted his voice and addressed them, men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ears to my words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified 
and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by him. Do you realize how bold that would have to be for Peter to say this? This same man that cussed out a little girl just a few days before is now standing in front of the very men that crucified Jesus. And he looked at him and said, you killed him and God raised him up. Wow, who is this guy? Where did he come from? Well, we know where that boldness came from. Because in Acts 2, 2 through 4, we said, And suddenly there from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit again, but began to speak in other tongues as the spirits gave them utterance. The difference between Peter standing around the fire cussing out little girls and Peter standing before men and calling them all a bunch of murderers who needed to get saved was one thing and one thing only, and it was the Holy Spirit of Jesus falling on him oh god give us that fire again so that we won't mealy mouth around the the water cooler at work so that we'll boldly live jesus out in front of our families and the people god has put us around and we see here that once we have the holy spirit on us that we care more about men getting saved than we do anything else and that comes from love Remember how we defined love? Caring more about other people than we do for ourselves? If I love you, I don't want to see you go to hell no matter what that means to me. If I love Jesus, I want him to be magnified and glorified. I don't care what you do to me. I can't shut up. Paul says back in 1 Thessalonians, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor the pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Paul uses the example here of, of a mom nursing her baby. There's just something about that bond between a mom when she's got that little child. I was, I was telling Mark and Bonnie that Friday I was in the bank standing in line. I was really smart. I went on uh, a Friday right after the 15th to a bank to get some money. And so I, I was there for a while. And so I was in line at uh, Wells Fargo. And there's, you know, they got it zigzagged around. And I was looking up and down the line. And I saw three women that were standing there doing this. And I thought to myself, there's some mommies right there. They've built in that instinct where they're used to having that kid out on the hip. You know how moms will stick that hip out? And they'll get that kid up there and then sway him back and forth. The kid wasn't there, but that was just still in that instinct. Because that mama cares more about that young one. Well, at that moment, she cares more about that young one sleeping. Oh, God, please let them sleep. Um, Than she does about herself. And Paul uses that as an example, that I cared for you, I loved you. Their compassion, the way that they worked, sprang from love. Now we see that throughout the New Testament. The reason why we tell people about Jesus is out of love. It's out of love for them, and it's out of love for your Savior. I'll tell you a funny story here. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes the Corinthian church. 
Okay, so here's Paul. He had gone to Corinth. He had led them to the Lord. They'd gotten saved. They'd started a church. He leaves, and that church goes absolutely south. We, were, we drove uh, over to uh, uh, Gunnersville yesterday, and we passed a Corinth Baptist Church. Whenever I see a Corinth Baptist Church, I'm like, did you guys not read the book, What Happened in Corinth? Really? You going to name yourself after that group of people? They were weirdos, man. You had a guy living with his own mom. You've got people suing each other. I mean, this church had gone off the rails to the point that Paul writes them in 1 Corinthians and says, some of you are arrogant and thought I was not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out. I will find not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Do you hear what he's saying? Some of you are running your mouth. Let's see how well you run your mouth standing in front of me. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Oh my gosh. You run in your little pie holes over there. Let's see what you got to say when a man of God's standing in front of you. He goes on. What do you want? What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with the love of the spirit of gentleness? Do you get what he just said? Get your act together. I'm coming back to that church with a stick. Really, Paul? This is my example as a pastor? Yes! I got some pestering to do. Get me my stick. If I had thought I'd have brought a stick in, that would have been a perfect time to bring out a stick. <clears throat> Next time. Next time. All right, in like five years, I'll preach this again. Remind me to bring a stick. All right. Okay, so here Paul is talking like this because that's exactly what this church needed. Any of you who are parents know there are times when what your kids needs more than anything is you to sit down with them and say, now, honey, let me explain this to you. You need to understand what I'm talking about. And you explain in detail, and there's times when that ain't the best thing for that child. And the most loving thing you can do is correct that child, right? A am I the only one who thinks that? I see all the kids are looking at the ground. There's a dad that believes that. I was telling some of the deacons last Sunday, I was at my parents' house, and Dad was in the back room, and he was changing clothes, and when he took his belt off, I heard the sound of that leather belt crossing through the belt loops, and I got a little nauseous. <laughs> I'm 47 years old, and I was thinking, what did I do? <laughs> but that's not where he ended it. Same man, in 2 Corinthians, he writes him back, and he said, I wrote as I did... So that when I come, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I had. When he wrote them back in 2 Corinthians, after they had repented and turned back to God, he told them, the reason why I wrote so harshly to you, the reason why I was so upset with you is because I loved you and I didn't want to see you destroy your life in the church. You see, Paul's motivation is love. His motivation, the, that would have, what Paul said would have been ugly if it had been about Paul or whether Paul was trying to be the man. Paul was concerned and loved them and wanted to see them return. And I would say that about 95, maybe 99.999% of church conflict would immediately cease if we would just love each other. And get our focus off of what I want 
on to what's best for that other person. I shared with you guys a couple of weeks ago about when I was uh, pastoring at um, another church, and they 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 fired me. And I I, I uh, maybe some of you are after this sermon are planning some stuff. Um, and I really struggled with being angry at some of the people there. And God uh, really convicted me and gave me a verse that I came out of it. In fact, I. This verse is so meaningful to me, and I need to be reminded of this text so much that I literally have it framed, and I keep it within eyesight of my desk. Um, and Garrett and, and some of the staff can tell you more than once when we've had a discussion about somebody who's doing something, I have gone over and taken that framed verse off the wall and reminded them and me of what it says. Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses. So Paul's telling Timothy that your job as a pastor here in the church in Ephesus is to love on these people, correct them with gentleness, don't be drawn into arguments, but to love on them. And then this is the part that breaks my heart, that I need to be reminded of. After Paul said they may repent, they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I say from the pulpit all the time, people are never the enemy. You see, if somebody is caught up in a sin and they want to say, you know what, all them people up there at that church are hypocrites. I ain't going to that church. They all, sorry. I realize that the reason that they're saying that has little to do with me or you. The reason why they are saying that is because they've been captured in a snare by the devil. And they want to do what they want to do. And so I pity them. I have found that when I'm standing around with a group of guys at a welding shop and somebody says, hey, preacher, and everybody realizes that I'm a preacher, either one or two things happen. One, they really start editing themselves and stop cussing. Or... I've also had this happen. All of a sudden, they start super cussing. It's like they start taking words apart and putting the F-bomb in the middle. It's like, really? Can you do that? Is that, is that the way we do language now? Um, because they want to they prove. Ha! See, I don't care that you're a preacher. And they think they're getting me. And this text has taught me. That's sad. You are captured by the devil. He literally has you in a snare. You know what a snare is, right? The way you catch birds in a net. And that bird's flapping around every which way trying to get out of that net. It just wants to be free. The devil's got somebody captured and using them like a puppet to do his will. So we in the church, if we love that person and realize that they're a prisoner of war, it's pretty hard to get angry at that point. It's pretty hard to go, that sorry so-and-so. 
We just don't, aren't very good at loving. You see, Paul's motivation in Thessal- Thessalonica and in Ephesus was love. Love for the people, love for God. And I'm here to say that if we want to be successful as a church in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, we've got to do that out of love. Both love for the people who are out there, the people who are, I pray on a regular basis, God, I pray that you'll take the guy on Larry Dale who is sleeping off a hangover on Sunday morning, save him, and let him be one of our next deacons. God, use him. Free him from the snare of the devil. He thinks he's doing whatever he wants and he's just a puppet. we got to love those people. Our position isn't, hey, why don't you start acting like me? Our position is, is God loved me enough to save me? He can save you too. We found the cure. We know who can save us. We've met him. I rarely go to the hospital to see somebody that I don't hear. I don't know how people without Jesus do it. We know what they need. A drunk's greatest need is not sobriety. His greatest need is Jesus. The people who come here trying to get food on Sunday nights, their greatest need isn't food. It's Jesus. The youth that come here on Wednesday night, their greatest need isn't to have a good time. Their greatest need is Jesus. Your preacher who's standing here right now, my greatest need is Jesus. And to get away from you guys for a few days. So as we come to a time of invitation, ask yourself, am I doing this Christian walk out of love? Or am I doing it out of compuncture? Am I doing it out of spite? And if love is not your motivation, this altar is open. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're here and you need to meet a risen Savior... I would love to introduce them to you. I want to share with you as, as they're, they're coming up. I had a girl this week. I just realized that she's not here today, so I can, I can share it without embarrassing her. Uh, came into my office. She wants to get baptized, and, and she's all covered up in tats. And she's a rough young lady. And, 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 and we're talking. I said, well, tell me about how you got saved. And she said, well, uh, I, was, I was in church, and you were preaching, and you said this, 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 and this. And and I just knew that I needed to get saved. I needed a Savior. So she, she came down the aisle, and Ron came and said, what can I pray with you about? And she said, I need to get saved. And she got saved two weeks ago right here. If you need a Savior, I would love nothing more. These men who will be down here would love nothing more. These ladies who will be down here would love nothing more than to share with you how to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. And if you're looking for a church home, I said it a lot last week, but I'll say it again. You can't do this Christian walk on your own. You need a church family. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to function out of love. God, that we would preach and teach and sing. God, that we would share and do lock-ins and pizza. God, that we would do Easter egg hunts and 
lock doors and cut on lights and mop floors all out of love. God, help us to really be your people. Use us. Make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.